So this is as they're just about to go into the land that God has led them to after all these years. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so you may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on, stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Thanks, Aaron. It would be really handy to have the passage and the outline in front of you if you'd like to follow along. I remember seeing a bit of graffiti uh, chalked up on a wall at a university that simply said, believe nothing, question everything. Sounds like an engineer, doesn't it? Sceptical. And somewhere I get written underneath, why? That must be a philosophy student, I think. Then somebody else would put, why not, underneath that. That could go on forever, couldn't it? But asking good questions is actually really helpful. Question everything? Yeah, there's a good place for that. So I've got a question for you, which I hope will be helpful. What would it take for you to get serious about being a Christian? What would need to happen for you to stop holding back on God in ways that only you and God know about? Ways in which you're uncomfortable, you're you're self-protective, you're not sure that you can really trust God. Or if you're not a Christian, what would need to happen for you to become a Christian? For that to move from being a possibility to a reality or even an impossibility to a personal reality. I think the answer for most people is pretty obvious. God needs to do something. Something spectacular, something impressive. Some sort of miracle. Maybe if he appeared in the sky and shouted out my name, that would do it. Maybe. Because if nothing would do it, if nothing God could do, nothing that could happen could change your mind and open your mind to, to God's reality, then your mind is closed, isn't it? 
and closed in such a way as it's pretty useless. If you're one of those people who's ever bargained with God, then, then you've got your answer already, haven't you? If you ever said to God, if you help me pass my exam, if you give me a boyfriend or girlfriend, then I'll be serious about you, you've got your answer. That's what God would need to do. But let me broaden the question. What would God need to do for all Christians to tremble and wonder at God? To quit playing at being Christians, to be willing even to die for Jesus and the gospel. Broaden further still, what would it take for everyone in the whole world, the seven and a half billion people, from Inuit to to Indians, from Indonesians uh, 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 to Italians, to take God seriously? To know that God is real and powerful. What miracle would be impressive enough to do that, even for your sceptical friends? What amazing thing would do it? Well, these two chapters in the book of Joshua describe such a miracle. Although, interestingly, the Bible usually doesn't use the word miracle because miracle's too slippery. It's, if you ever try to define what a miracle is, you'll know how hard it is. Most people intuitively think, oh, well, a miracle is when God suspends the laws of nature. You know, something like this just suddenly levitates. But would that actually do it? Because one of the difficulties is it may just be that we haven't discovered the law of nature that, that explains why it would levitate. We don't know. It's hard to define a miracle. The Bible tends to use the word wonder or sign. And I think it is helpful. It's describing something which is really weird. So weird that God is the only viable ultimate cause. It's the hand of God. And if you read this passage, if you have a look at it, and go to the very last verse that Aaron read for us, and you'll see what the writer is saying. He, that is God, did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful And so that you, Israelites, might always fear the Lord your God. See those two purposes? That all the peoples of the earth know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is real and powerful. He's not a superstition, not just fear-mongering by those who believe in him, some sort of myth. And also that Israel, God's people, will always know that Yahweh, their God, is real. Not just those who were there and saw it, but succeeding generations as well. What would it take to do that? It would have to be extraordinary, wouldn't it? And it would have to be very public as well. Well, as we read this account in Joshua 3 and 4, the people in the story only gradually sort of work out what is going on and what's going to happen. Uh, If you were with us when we looked at Joshua chapter 1, the message basically is God says to Israel, and especially Joshua, their leader at this point because Moses has died, My promises to give you this land of Canaan stand. I'm going to give it to you. And they must have wondered how. Firstly, the land is inhabited. It's not terra nullius. It's full of people. Secondly, between them and the bulk of the land is the Jordan River. They're on the east side. Most of the land is on the west side. They've been encouraged by the report of the spies. But how on earth is it going to happen? And they're told, go down to the edge of the river. But it's not until verse 13 of chapter 3 that they're told what is actually going to happen. So in verse 13, As soon as the priests who carried the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. It's a bit hard to imagine, isn't it? 
You walk down towards this river and as soon as the priest's feet sort of get wet, it stops flowing and it dries up and you can walk across. Well, the action starts, verse 14. The people break camp, they go down the Jordan, the priest carrying the ark in front of them. And then the writer gives us a piece of important information. Verse 15, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Or more literally, the Jordan River overflows all its banks, all of harvest. Now, we need to... Ah, sorry, yeah. This is a a picture of the Jordan Valley. You can see it's a pretty sort of deep valley. Hills, actually mountains on each side. The topography is that the Jordan River at this stage, it's flowing between the Sea of Galilee, which is about 200 metres below sea level, to the Dead Sea, which is over 400 metres below sea level. It falls about 200 metres in 100 kilometres. Now, if you don't know what that means, uh, it's a bit like the Avon River from Northam down to Guildford, uh, that, that sort of thing. And if, if you know the Avon River, they run the Avon descent in August each year because at that stage it should be in flood. And when it's in flood, yes, you've got a boat, you can get across, but it, it's in flood. It, it might be okay for a couple of spies to be able to get across, but a million people, children, all their belongings, their tents, all their livestock to get across a river like this is impossible. This is sort of what it looks like when it's not full. You can imagine what it would look like when it's overflowing all its banks. It's a raging torrent, and that's what confronts the people. What they're doing looks ludicrous. I mean, there's no boats or ferries due for about 3,000 years. There's no steel girders lying around to quickly construct a nice little bridge. There's just a few priests carrying a wooden box. But in verse 15, second half of it, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, all the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over in a dry riverbed opposite Jericho. So the minute the priest's toes touch the water, it stops. There's a dry riverbed. They can all walk across and we're actually told they hurry across, which if I'd been one of them, that's what I would have done too. And then chapter 4, verse 17, Joshua commands the priests come up out of the Jordan. As the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, no sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. This is extraordinary, isn't it? If you'd been there, you would have been stunned. I presume you'd have pinched yourself and say, how did I get on this side of the river? I was on that side. There's a raging torrent. I can't believe that it actually dried up and I could just walk across. It's not psychosomatic, is it? Lots of people are very sceptical about the miracles in the Bible. They don't believe they really happened. And I think they've got something going for them in that scepticism. Because they recognise that what's being described is not ordinary events. They are extraordinary, unusual, almost unique events. They're not happening in the world around us today, are they? If this sort of thing happened in Perth today, it would be on the news. It would have been on the front page of a newspaper in Jericho that day if they had a newspaper. It is, it's extraordinary. It's unusual. But is it enough to achieve chapter 4, verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful? And so that Israel may always fear the Lord your God. To answer that, we need to ask, 
Why the wonder? Why did this happen? Is it just an unexplained curiosity from the ancient world, like the totems on Easter Island or Stonehenge, that defies easy explanation? Like, imagine you were wandering along the edge of Matilda Bay this afternoon, and suddenly all the water in the Swan River disappeared. What would you make of it? All you got is muddy mud and abandoned shopping trolleys. Would you conclude that God had done it? Would you bow down in awe? I suspect not. So what is it about this event that the writer expects it will have the pur- achieve the purpose of chapter 4, verse 24? Well, firstly, there's the context. What is the book of Joshua about? It's about God keeping his promises. The promises God had made that revealed his plans, particularly the ones to uh, Abraham about 600 years before. Where God had said to Abraham, just out of the blue, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you with all these blessings, offspring to be a great nation. I'm going to be your God, you'll be my people, and I'll give you the land. And through you, I'll bless all the peoples of the world. And the book of Joshua is especially about the land. God says, now is the time, I'm going to give you the land. So why this wonder? Because God will keep his promise. And if a river stands between the promise of God and it being fulfilled, then God will stop the river. And Israel would have understood that because of the ark. Remember the ark being mentioned? Uh, now, at this point, think it, when you think ark, don't think Noah's ark. That was a big ship. And please don't think Indiana Jones. Those of you who know the movies, they're great movies, they're good fun. But the only true thing they tell you about the ark is that it's lost. Everything else is fantasy. But the ark, if you notice as as you listened, plays a central role in this whole thing. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the priests are to carry the ark in front of all the people down to the river. It's when the ark goes into the river that the river stops. It stays in the middle of the river while all the people go across. Now, that sort of does remind you of Indiana Jones, doesn't it? (laughs) This box that has magic properties. But it was just a box like this. And it's called the Ark of the Covenant, repeatedly through these chapters. Not just the Ark, not just a wooden box, not just a magic box, it's not that. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The Covenant is the promise of God, the contract that God drew up with Israel saying, this is what I will do, I will give you the land. It had in it the manna, or at least a sample of the manna that God had fed the people of Israel with. It had in it the two stone slabs with the Ten Commandments chiselled on them that begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It begins with what God has done for them, the promise of God. And so for them it was a clear symbol of God's promise. Just like this wedding ring, if you can see it, is a clear symbol of my marriage to Rosemary. It isn't the marriage, but every time I look at it, it reminds me that I'm married. And it reminds me of Rosemary and it gives me a smile on my face. And yeah, it's good. And you lost the first one. Yeah, I lost the first one. That's another story. So as they hurried across the river, they would have seen the promise of God standing there in the middle of the river, keeping the riverbed dry. And then there's the boulders. Uh, We read some of it in chapter 4, 1 to 3. God says to Joshua, before they go down to the river, choose 12 guys, one's from each tribe, and as they go down through the river, they're to pick up one of the boulders from the river, from the riverbed. 
Because the boulders in the riverbed are different to boulders elsewhere. They've been worn smooth. They're, They're round. And they're to carry them out the other side. Um, and, uh, uh, in, uh, and what they do is uh, they carry them that night to where they camp at Gilgal, which is about eight kilometres up from the river. They must have been burly guys they chose to carry these, these boulders. And then they pile them up in a monument to the wonder. And Joshua envisages a time in the future when you know, dad and son and daughter are doing a camping trip in Gilgal National Park and they come across this pile of round river rocks up in Gilgal National Park. And the, the kid says, Dad, what on earth are these doing here? They don't belong here. They're not native to this part of the country. You know, it's those ones on the right we'd, we'd expect to find here, not the ones on the left. And what's Dad to say? Well, pick it up in verse 22. Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he'd done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we'd crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. See, this crossing of the river, this wonder, is not an endlessly repeatable event such that every time Israel has a few doubts about God and his promises, God says to them, well, go back down to the edge of the Jordan River and I'll stop the river for you again. No, this is not repeatable like that. For each generation to come, the rocks remind them that God did it back then. It's an event and a wonder that stands as a testimony for years to come, for generations to come. It's a monument. I don't know whether you've seen this, but in almost every park, in every country town in Australia, there's a monument. It's almost always to the First World War and maybe another one to the Second World War. There's one up in Kings Park, but there are also many of the local parks around, around Perth. Why were they built? So that we would not forget. Yeah, I wasn't there. I wasn't there in the First World War. I, I don't know the people who gave their lives, but they want us, the people who were there, want us never to forget that men and women gave their lives for our freedom. And here's another monument, a very significant pile of rocks to remind them every time they see it of what really happened. Don't forget. And the effects of this wonder is that all people, the people in Jericho, Well, if they were shaking before in their sandals, now they're falling to pieces because they know God's power. This is the Lord of all the earth. He has the power that no one else has. And secondly, Israel to always fear Yahweh. See, God thinks this wonder is sufficient, not just for those who witnessed it, who experienced it, but for those who hear about it later, like us. It's not to be repeated, but remembered. And it's an assurance to Israel that God will give them the land. Back in chapter 3, verse 10. Did you pick that up? This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, etc. You can know that God will keep his promise because in keeping his promise, he stopped the river. They have trouble believing God's promises. And God doesn't simply say, well, just believe. Come on, you can find it somewhere in yourself to believe. No, he says, I'll do this. Now that's sufficient for you to believe, isn't it? And it endorses Joshua's leadership. This wonder validates Joshua as the one from whom the mantle of Moses has been passed. 
And so it says through Joshua, that's the one God is doing his thing. His purposes are happening through Joshua. And as you step back, I think you'll see, if you're familiar with it, that this is actually how all the biblical wonders work. They show you what God is doing in his world, what he's doing to bring about his plans and purposes. In this case, through Joshua. Sort of like there's a big thing saying, look at Joshua. He's the guy. That's where I'm at work. Get in with Joshua. Now, is this wonder sufficient to achieve all that? It's certainly weird. Is it just a coincidence? A man called Sir Edmund Godfrey, who lived in Greenbury Hill, London, was murdered by three vagabonds, uh, vagabonds, whose names were Mr Green, Mr Berry and Mr Hill. True story. Coincidence. I presume that's what you'd say. Weird things do sometimes happen. Just let the clock run long enough and something weird will happen in the world. If you were down by the Swan River and it it just dried up, I presume you'd say, this is pretty weird, it's bizarre, it's inexplicable. Would that be sufficient? I I suggest probably not. You'd just say, "It's, it's weird. I assume there's an explanation somewhere without invoking God as that explanation. But this event is not like that. It's weird, yes, it's spectacular, yes, but it's not simply weird. Firstly, it's predicted. God told the people what was going to happen well before it happened. Secondly, the the timing was perfect. The priests, as soon as their toes touch the water, it stops. As soon as they come out the other side, across the bank, it starts again. See, coincidences are random. You can't predict them. And it's purposeful. It achieves something God is already publicly committed to doing. Now, it's interesting that uh, the the author actually tells us a little bit of how it happened. Chapter 3, verse 16. The water piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is about 50 kilometres upstream from where they cross over. Now, we're told where it happened, how it happened, we're not quite sure. It could, I guess, have been something like a landslide. In 1927, a landslide happened in the Jordan Valley And uh, it created a dam and the water stopped flowing down the Jordan for a couple of days. Maybe it was that sort of thing. But even if it was a landslide, the timing, the the prediction, the purposefulness of it shows that this is God doing his thing. It's clearly the hand of God, not a mere coincidence. And it's not just a magic trick. God's showing off a bit of supernatural power, pulling a rabbit out of a hat just for the fun of it to impress you. This is God's hand achieving what he's already said he's going to do. And if a river gets in the way, he will stop the river. Is it sufficient to achieve this, that all the peoples of the world know that God is real and powerful? That Israel and we fear the Lord? Yeah, I actually reckon it is. If you reconstruct it in your imagination as if you'd been there, it's remarkable. I think it's compelling that this really is the hand of God. Well, I wasn't there. It's a long time ago. About 1,400 years after this wonder, another Joshua appeared in Canaan. We call him Jesus. Same name, though, Joshua in Hebrew, Jesus in, in, in well, anglicised Greek, who performed signs and wonders that leave this Joshua in the shade. Let me give you a couple of samples. 
One day he came across a guy in his 40s who was born blind. And he healed him so he could see again. Now, that was so remarkable that the, the, the sceptics called in his parents and said, listen, is this really your son or a fake? They said, no, it's our son. They said, was he really born blind or have you been covering up something? No, no, no he was born blind. Well, how did this happen? They said, I don't know. We don't know how it happened. But the evidence is staring you in the face. Now, a man born blind, we now know it's even more extraordinary. Because if you're born blind, the optic nerves don't actually form between your eye and your brain. And all the, the brain connections that you need for that, the, the, the nerves, um, whatever goes through, the synapses, to actually form images in your brain aren't formed either. For somebody born blind to be able to see is an extraordinary thing that is unexplainable. The more science we understand of vision and brain, the more extraordinary it gets. I called Lazarus, dead, buried, four days in the grave. His body not just dead, but starting to fall apart. And Jesus says, come out. And he does it publicly. Skeptics and believers are there. And Lazarus comes out alive. Jesus himself was murdered, buried, sealed in a tomb. And he leaves the tomb empty and is seen by uh, hundreds of people. See, again, these events are not random, weird things. They're like the crossing of the river. It's God keeping his promise. Because he said right back there to Abraham, one day I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world through a descendant of Abraham. And here's Jesus reversing the devastating effects of evil in people's lives. Disease and disability and death. Liberating people from their captivity to sin and its deadly effects for now and for eternity. See, Jesus wonders, his his signs are signs pointing to what God is doing in Jesus, to who Jesus is. As light floods the brain of the man born blind, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. As Lazarus's pulse quickens and he's alive again, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. As he rises from the grave, Death itself is rolled back. So death is rolling over all of us gradually, isn't it? It'll catch up to us one day and Jesus rolls it back, alive again. And John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs. John, one of his disciples, one of the witnesses of everything he did in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written. I've recorded a few for you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. John's recorded them so that you and I might know that God is real and powerful. And that Jesus is the one God is working through. And so you'll know what God is doing in the world. You'll know what the future holds. So the next book of the Bible, this is what the Apostle Paul said. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. That is Jesus. And he's given proof of this to all By raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, says Paul, is proof that there will be a day of judgment for you and me. See, how do you know death is not the end? How do you know you don't just get buried and rot in the grave or get burned up and go into oblivion? How do you know that God would call us to account for our life? How do you know that God will make your life account account because you're, you're accountable? Your decision significant and meaningful. Well, you don't know. Except that 
A wonder happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus came out of the grave. He rose again. He didn't go into death and oblivion, but back to life again. That's how we know. Now, if you can't quite follow the logic of that, please come to Midyear Conference. Because at Midyear Conference, we explore resurrection and see all the implications of that event that happened 2,000 years ago. And they are mind-blowing. Don't know about it. Uh, it's in the, uh, the holidays between semesters. We'll tell you about it. John says what Jesus did is sufficient for you and me to know that God is real, that God is powerful, that we might fear God always. You'd like another miracle, would you? You'd like one just for you, would you? The Bible's ones aren't enough for you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's how I feel quite often. I'd love God to do some more miracles. And what does God say? Aren't they enough for you? See, John doesn't say, well, Jesus did these signs and if you have any doubts, he'll do a few more signs for you. Just, just wait around and ask him and he'll do some more signs. No, John says these are sufficient for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As I chat to students at UWA, many take the attitude, well, if God really wants me to believe in him, then God will do something to convince me, won't he? And until he does, I'm free to ignore him. I'm justified in just getting on with my other pursuits until God steps in. At the moment, the ball is still in God's court. And it sort of seems reasonable, doesn't it? Until you realise that God has stepped in. He did it 3,400 years ago at the Jordan River. He's especially done it in all that Jesus did. And God says, why are you ignoring the clear actions, the wonders I've already done? Maybe we start to understand Jesus when he said to his own contemporaries, it's an evil generation that asks for a sign. So what does God need to do for you to take him seriously? To stop holding back on God? To take him more seriously than you do now if you don't? What does God need to do? What would God need to do for you to believe that God will keep his promises to you, so confident of your own resurrection and the new creation that you're willing to even speak up in your classes about your belief in Jesus. You might lose all your friends. You might get rubbished out of the room. What would it take for you to believe in God's promises so that you'll be loyal to him in all your pursuits instead of everything else that you could pursue in life? Well, is it that God hasn't done enough? Really? That's not that, is it? Now, the ball is in our court if Jesus died and rose again, if the River Jordan was stopped. When we see what God has done, then the question isn't, what is God going to do? The question has to be, what am I going to do? It's in your court. It's in my court. What is stopping us fearing God and living for him? Will you pray with me? And then we'll have a short time for questions. Lord God, we, at least I, maybe others with me, admit that we often don't take seriously enough what you have done. Please help us to see, to be convinced, to believe and to respond. Amen. Now we've got about three minutes left. Is there any questions or comments you want to make?
happy to try and field them or see what I can work out. Remember, question everything. Believe nothing. Hey, Tim, yeah. Sorry? Uh, not that I know of. I don't think. Yeah. Thanks, Jacob. Okay, I'll hand back to Alistair, but I'll hang around afterwards if there are things you want to take up with me.